We were friends for most of our lives. Close friends. We didn't always live near each other, but we maintained our friendship. And one of the things that excited me about going to seminary was my friend was also a student there. And we were going to get to spend considerable amounts of time together that we hadn't been able to for quite a while. That first year together was awesome. He was married, and so uh, I would often go to their house. His wife and I were good friends as well. Often go to their house. We would study together. We ate a lot together. I was very blessed for them that they welcomed me to their home for meals. And uh, we just loved spending time together, talking through things we were learning, theology, just life. And um, the first, after that first year and the summer after that, it, it felt like when we came back, back around in the fall that things weren't the same as they were before that. And I, I didn't know why, but I could just tell things were different in our relationship. When I would say, hey, you want to get together, I'd sort of get a brush off about it. I didn't get any contacts from him about, hey, you want to come over or do you want to study together or do you want to connect in any way? It was just silence. And it seemed like every attempt I made was empty. And the times when we were together were not the same as they were before. And then I began to realize that it was probably rooted around he had decided to identify himself with some other people and have create friendships with them. Instead of adding that to our relationship, it subtracted our relationship. And I guess I, I sort of looked back on it and I thought at the time, it sort of feels like he had an opportunity to hang out with the cool kids and he took it. And... Honestly, it was, I was deeply hurt. We eventually, over the course of the next year, we eventually figured some things out and our friendship became real again. But it was a hard time. And I suspect that in one way or another, you can identify with being hurt like that. What's interesting to me is that Those kinds of hurts, those deepest hurts, are more often than not rooted in relationships to people we're close to. We can be hurt by anybody. But the deepest hurts of our lives come from relationships that we have with people we love and trust. Which is why the pain is so deep. Because we trusted this person and they turned on us. We, we, we loved this person. We, we built relationship with them and they rejected us. And the deeper the friendship, the deeper the connection, the deeper the trust, the deeper the pain. It took me a long time to realize, to think about the pain that Jesus must have experienced in the garden. Judas is a disciple. Judas has spent the last probably three plus years with Jesus. Talking with Jesus, walking with Jesus, eating with Jesus, engaging life with Jesus. Judas has, and, the, and the other 11 disciples have had a window into Jesus that most of the other people never got. 
They saw things. They know things. They've had conversations about things that almost no one else has had. Jesus has invested himself fully, completely in every way in these 12 men. And Judas is one of them. And Matthew points that out. Matthew makes that point to us. He says, Judas, one of the disciples, betrays Jesus. And what fascinates me is that he drives, he makes the pain as deep as he possibly can because he portrays him with an act that's connected to love and friendship. A kiss. And it's premeditated. Matthew says, Judas told the guys who were with him, look, here's the signal, the one that I kiss. That's the one you arrest. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, all right, look, I'll point him out to you when we get close. He could have even stayed back in the group and said, look, it's the guy with the purple and red coat. That's the one. But Judas does this in such a way that you almost get the sense that he is, he's grinding the pain even deeper by an act that is intended to be an act of friendship, an act of, of love. And he twists it into betrayal. But you know, when you think about it, every act of rejection and betrayal is an act of evil. There are, there are a variety of theories about why Judas does this. Some people say it's because he's so greedy. He wants money. And he, one of the gospel writers says he's, he's been dipping into the treasury. But it seems to me if Judas was really after money, he would have negotiated for more than 30 pieces of silver. Some, some wonder if Judas isn't a bit worried about where this is all headed. And if Jesus is really going to surrender himself to the authorities, that's going to leave Judas and the other disciples in a very precarious position. And he doesn't really want to be in that kind of position. So he, identif- he says, look, that guy's not with me anymore. There are lots of theories about the fact that Judas is trying to to convince Jesus, trying to to force Jesus' hand to reveal himself as the Messiah. The kind of Messiah that will destroy the Romans, raise up the people of Israel into a nation again, and they will be the powerful people that they believe God always intended them to be. And Judas is forcing Jesus' hand because if he's going to be arrested, Jesus will then do what he needs to do to make all that happen. But it seems to me that whatever theory people put forth, something I think we do that because it makes makes us feel maybe that Judas is a little less of a scoundrel than he is otherwise. If we can find a good reason to wrap our mind around it. Now, here's the thing. You can't wrap your mind around evil. It just is. You can't explain evil. It just is. It's just actions that we have to deal with. And sometimes we think, if I could just get my hand, if I could just get a handle on it, then I could, I could figure it out and I could be past it. But the reality is, it keeps coming at us. Because at the heart of everything Judas does, whatever theory you want to promote, is self-interest. Everything Judas does, whatever theory, it comes back to self-interest. Whether it's money, whether it's, it's uh, not wanting to be identified with somebody who's going to 
create pain for him or whether it's saying, I think I know how the kingdom should be accomplished better than you do, Jesus. It's all about self-interest. In the times when people hurt us, no matter what they say, it's about self-interest. And if we're honest with ourselves, the times when we hurt other people, no matter what we say, it's about self-interest. And Jesus is here in the garden. And Judas, out of his self-interest, comes and betrays him. There are theories that, that um, this is an act of God. This is how God gets Jesus to the cross. And so God is orchestrating all of these moves. I, I, I can't see that. For one reason, because Luke says in chapter 22 that what, what initiates Luke, Judas going to the people about betraying Jesus is that Satan enters him. Betrayal is never an act of God. There are those who say that Judas is created for this role to be the betrayer. That's his fate. That's his destiny. I don't think God creates anyone for evil. I think Judas makes a choice. Over a, series, over a period of time, he makes choice after choice that draws him further and further away from his relationship with Jesus and the Father until he comes to the place where he actually can betray Jesus. That's not the work of God. That's the work of evil. But here's Jesus in the garden. And he says, he talks about how this is fulfilling the purposes of God. But those purposes are not that, that God has ordained all of this. The purposes of God are the, is the redemption of the world. And that's why Jesus comes. That's why Jesus doesn't run. That's why when Peter, Peter uh, cuts off the servant's ear, Jesus says, no, that's not how we're going to do this. This is not about swords flashing. That's not how we're going to accomplish this. Because honestly, that backfires on you. Because if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. He says, listen, don't you think, if that's the way we were going to accomplish this, don't you think I know, don't you realize if that were the case, I could, I could say the word and in less than a millisecond, this place would be filled with angels and all these people that have come to arrest me would be dead on the ground. When Paul talks in, in Philippians 2 about Jesus emptying himself, and he says, though he was being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus isn't giving up his godness. Jesus is eternally God. He is just simply declaring in coming to this earth that he will not use his godness to, res to rescue himself or to protect himself. He will use it for the redemption of people like you and me. And Jesus could fight. He has all the resources in the world. Jesus could run. But he says, I came to give my life to be the Redeemer. And I'm going to follow it through. It's the prayer in the garden. 
Father, this plan that you and I put together from the foundation of the world, I'm I'm committed to it. We're going to see it to its end. Maybe that's the difference between Jesus' response here in the garden and and Peter's. Jesus prayed through that and Peter slept. Jesus, Jesus allows himself to be betrayed. And nobody's forcing Jesus to do this. He willingly goes to the cross. He willingly allows himself to be arrested and beaten and nailed to the cross for our redemption and for all people. And in the cross, Jesus now has the gives to us the pathway, the means of healing our hurt, our pains, our brokenness. It's in the cross. Because the only answer to betrayal is the cross. The only way that it has any, that it can ever have any significance or meaning is through the cross. And it's not that when Jesus says, look, we don't use the sword, that he's just simply He's just simply backing up and saying, well, there's nothing I can do. And there are times when you and I are hurt so deeply and and we think, well, there's nothing I can do. We can always turn to the cross and find healing. It doesn't mean that we deny our pain. Sometimes I think the church has has sort of promoted the idea that the the way to get over things is, is just is denial. We just act like we aren't hurt. We just act like we, didn't, we, we aren't in pain. We act like that didn't bother us. But that doesn't lead us to healing. That just pushes down reality until the, and the more we push it down, the bigger the explosion is going to be when it eventually comes out. The pathway of the cross is honesty. It's honesty about our struggle and our pain and the reality of that. Because when we are honest about it and when we bring it to God, then the healing can begin to take place. Because here's the thing. When Jesus Jesus goes to the cross to be the Messiah, the Redeemer, and as I've said to you before, there's only one Messiah. There's only one Redeemer and it's Jesus. But Jesus also looks at us and says, if you're going to be my disciples, you take up your cross and you follow me. Paul says not only that Jesus, Jesus did not, who being God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became a servant. He not only says that, but he says right before that, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And the only way for us to be, to be people who are able to take up our cross, the only way that we can have the mind of Christ, the only way that we can be agents of Jesus' redemption in the world is if we allow him to heal and to work his healing grace in our pain, in our heartache, in our brokenness, in our struggle, which is exactly what he wants to do. Because the reality is, Taking up our cross, loving like Jesus, puts us at risk for more pain. 
Love always puts us at risk for pain. Freud said, you are never, you are never more in, in defenseless against suffering than when you love. I think he's right. Scott Peck says the definition, his definition of love is the will to extend oneself for one's own or another's spiritual growth. It is an act, is a choice to risk. That's what love is. It's a choice to risk. And the only alternative to that risk is to not love. And we say, well, I don't want to be hurt again because I've been hurt so many times. I understand that. The problem is, if we, if we refuse to risk love, then we can no longer experience love. Because we build a wall around us and other people and even God and say, I just can't risk loving anymore. And that wall doesn't just keep our risk from going that way, our love from going that way. That wall keeps the love from coming this way too. And Jesus goes to the cross to begin to break down the wall and to bring healing to us. We, life is always presenting us with opportunities to take the risk of love. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that, um, you know, sometimes I, God puts me in a place to learn patience when I'm out with our little dog. It's just, yeah, it's continual, you know, and, and, and every so often I get it right, but most of the time I don't. You know, and I, and I get impatient, and and I and I come in, and I'm and I feel so bad, I feel so guilty because I blew it once again, and I think I said something to you, and when I was telling you that, that you know, well, I sure still hear this voice in my head, God saying to me, well, I'll give you more opportunities to practice that, and and I think as I've thought about it, I think I may have misspoken because God doesn't provide those opportunities, life does. He doesn't need to manufacture opportunities for us to learn how to grow and develop in whatever it may be, including love. Life provides all kinds of opportunities for us to do that. We live in a broken world among broken people. And we hurt each other. And we disappoint each other. We reject each other. And in the midst of that, Jesus, who was betrayed knows our pain, goes to the cross so that we can be healed from our hurt and pain so that we can then be his agents of loving grace to the world that is desperately in need of it, just as we are. There's, there are theolo- there have been theologians through the years who have said that God... God can't feel emotion. Emotions are a base kind of thing. That's a human thing. You know, that, that, that just, God can't do that. God's above all of that. And, and whenever human beings talk about God having emotions, the, the, the tip, often the response is, we're, we're creating God in our own image. But I, I think it's the other way around. The reason we have emotions is because we're created in the image of God. We love, John says, because God first loved 
us. We have compassion because God first has compassion on us. That's where it begins. It's the heart of God. And we see that nowhere more clearly than in Jesus. And if God, if love is a risk for us, it's a risk for God too. In fact, God is the great risk taker. I'm convinced of that. God creates human beings. And what a risk he takes. Because when he creates them in love for relationship, there is the, there is the real possibility that human beings will reject him and go their own way. And God, God identifies himself with all kinds of people throughout the pages of Scripture. And some of them are wonderful people. Abraham and Noah and Moses and David. But boy, they have flaws too. And God says to Israel, okay, you're going to be my people. And everything people understand about me, they're going to see in you. You represent me in the world. Well, that went off the rails really quickly. And God says to the church, okay, you, you represent me. You're my, you're my visible presence. And the history of the church is, is tragic so often. And what does God do? He keeps on risking. He keeps on loving. Because that's who he is. So much so that that he sends Christ. That Christ comes to be the Messiah, the Redeemer. Lost, broken people. Who not only reject each other, but reject him. And his call on us is to let him so work in us and in our pain that we can actually become agents of redemption and healing for other people. And it doesn't mean we're going we're to be perfect. We're always going to get that right. I, I appreciate the fact that Tess was very honest with us and said, I'm really wrestling with this. I, I feel a little hypocritical because I haven't arrived. You know what? When I almost wanted to say, okay, let's raise our hands if we all haven't arrived. You know, I get that. One of the things that intrigues me is that when you read the epistles of Paul and Peter, between the two of them, five times, they say to the church, greet each other with a holy kiss. It struck me as I was thinking about that, that if it were me, I think I would have said, you know what, let's not do the kiss thing anymore because... Judas, that has bad connotations for us. You know, let's try to get away from that. Let's ignore that. Because every time we think about the kiss, all we're going to think about is Judas in the garden betraying our Savior. And all that that led to. Do we really want to keep bringing that up all the time? Let's find, Let's just shake hands. But I think the reason why they don't shy away from that is because they know the whole point of the cross is that Jesus redeems things like a kiss of betrayal and turns this act of evil into something he always intended it to be from the beginning, an act of love and friendship and unity and grace. That's, what, that's the heart of the cross. That's our Redeemer. 
He's calling us to let him do that in us too. And it is hard. Because probably at somewhere along the line, we're going to have to say, God, help me to forgive. And as I've said to you before, maybe... Maybe you can't pray, help me to forgive. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe the prayer you need to pray is, Lord, help me to want to forgive. Maybe the prayer, you, only prayer you can pray is, Lord, help me to want to want to forgive. And here's the thing that I've discovered about God. Is that wherever we are on the journey, He meets us right there. He meets us right there. If we're at the help me to forgive or help me want to forgive or help me want to want to forgive, it doesn't matter. He will meet us right where we are and he will do his redeeming, healing work in us at that place and move us to where he ultimately wants us to be. We're going to take just a few moments this morning of some silence. Maybe there's something that you want to say to God. Maybe there's something... God needs to say to you. But we're going to take just a few moments of silence and then we're going to offer our prayers for each other and for the world. And maybe as you as you pray today, maybe this is a day where you want to come to the altar and pray. Maybe you want to kneel in your seat or maybe you just are comfortable sitting there. Whatever the case may be, let's come before God and hear Him and speak to Him. And ask him to do his work in us. Father, thank you for being our Redeemer. The healing grace 
that you desire to do in each one of us. And giving us the privilege of being agents of your healing grace to each other and to others. Thank you for your love. Thank you. Father, we thank you that you are at work in the hurts and the pains, not only in our lives, but in others. We pray for all who are feeling the pain of grief, particularly the family of Betty O'Burn, who died this week. We thank you for your healing grace in all who are struggling with health concerns. Phyllis Osgood, Grace Taylor, Debbie Alderman Wilson, Dan Moore, the Marsh family, John Retz, Emily Hood, Bob Brown, Bill Getty, Nancy Cole, Rosalind Danner, Eileen Spear, Evelyn Heil, Dan Gurley, Cheryl O'Brien, Gwen Mercer, Cousin Louise Princell, Bethy Liddick, Beverett, Phil Maine, Emily Cricklar, Mike Raybuck, Sheldon Emerson, Isla Shea, Isabella Doherty, Peter Langenfelter, so many others. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our church. We thank you for what you're doing in churches around us. We pray today for the Wellsville Full Gospel Church, Pastor Tanner. May they know your blessings upon them. We pray, Father, for for our wider world, our nation. Those recovering from recent tragedies and disasters, for refugees, for people living in places of war and conflict, for the leaders of our nation, government, and all the various stages of it. May it be evident that you are at work. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Thank you for what you're doing in Eastern Europe. Lord, may there continue to be open doors to share your love. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq as some of the the pressure has been relieved and as people come back to their homes and churches, help them as they rebuild their lives and may the church testify to the forgiveness of Christ in powerful ways. May lives be changed. May the whole country be changed. And may it spread to the whole Middle East and throughout the world because of what you're doing there. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the merciful, gracious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.